The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, a killer flees through time and the Gordian Division gives chase and James North uncovers a secret plot. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshariarod. As we mentioned on last week's podcast, Eric Flint passed away recently at the age of 75. Eric was a huge presence at Bain, and he will be missed, but we know his legacy will live on. This week on the podcast, Griffin Barber, who co-wrote two novels in the Ring of Fire series with Eric, hosted a roundtable discussion with David Weber, Charles E. Gannon, Bjorn Hassler, and Kevin Eikenberry. They discussed Eric as an author, collaborator, mentor, and friend. Next week, we'll bring you Griffin's discussion with Tony Weiskopf, Bane Books publisher, editor-in-chief, and art director, as she remembers Eric, as well as some highlights from Eric's past appearances on the podcast. And now, the news. The latest e-arcs are in. Let's take a look. First up, we have The Janus Files by David Weber and Jacob Hollow. A search through time to track a killer. It was supposed to be a routine trip for the members of the Gordian Division, both human and AI. Fly out to Saturn, inspect the construction of their latest time machines, then fly back. But when the Division's top scientist and chief engineer are killed in the same freak accident, suspicions of foul play run deep. Detective Isaac Cho is sent to investigate. Despite his objections, Cho is stuck with an untested partner on a case that increasingly reeks of murder and conspiracy. The unlikely pair must work together to unravel this mystery, and soon they discover their unique combination of skills might just provide the edge they need. But nothing is ever simple where the Gordian Division is involved. Not even time itself. Next up, we have Deathless Gods by P.C. Hodgel. Intrigue and danger among the highborn. Jamathiel North, priest's bane and dreamweaver, has returned victorious from Tai Tastagon, but trouble dogs the Kinserath. The Randir and his allies want the larger houses to decide for all nine, which would strip the high lordship from the north. At Almiroth, a senile king struggles against his venal son-in-law. Kindry Soulwalker is captured and thrown in a secret dungeon, a political prisoner. Now Jame rides south to Bashti. Here she confronts an unready and presumptuous heir, a withholding and manipulative paymaster, and invisible assassins. Her formal errand, meanwhile, is to compete in martial games with secret states, which she fears are a cloak for a massacre or worse. That's The Janus File by David Weber and Jacob Hollow and Deathless Gods by PC Hodgel, both available in eARC format for a limited time. And that's it for the news. Hello and welcome to this special episode of the Bain Free Radio Hour. 
Today, we are going to remember our co-author, mentor, and friend, Eric Flint. His storied legacy has been detailed elsewhere, so I won't delve too deeply into it, but to reiterate that absolutely no one, no single person has done more for more writers in our genre than Eric Flint. He was free with his time, his advice, and his encouragement for an entire generation of writers, including our panel today. Each of us has at least a story or two to tell about Eric Flint's impact on our lives and our careers. Please welcome our panel, David Weber, Chuck Gannon, Bjorn Hassler, and Kevin Eikenberry. Please introduce yourselves briefly for our audience. David, I wish to start. I'm, I'm David Weber. Um, I've known Eric since 1998, I think. Uh, when uh, I encountered this, uh, which is still my favorite book that he ever wrote, uh, Mother of Demons, um, I think you only get to discover an author the first time once, and this is the book in which I discovered him. Uh, wonderful friend, uh, great uh, collaborator, and, and probably one of the most generous human beings uh, I ever encountered. I'm Chuck uh, Gannon. Chuck? Uh, yep, I'm Chuck Gannon, and um, I write science fiction, fantasy, and all the other stuff that that people know or don't know me for. But um, I'm going to uh, I'm simply going to say that I only had the uh, opportunity to know Eric for about 13 years, and um, that's about that's a, at least a third too long, uh, too too short. Excuse me, and. Uh, I'll, um, I'll wait. I'll hold any other details for the time when we share our stories. Bjorn? Um, my name is Bjorn Hassler. I'm the assistant editor of the Granville Gazette. And I write for the Gazette and Ring of Fire Press. And uh, Eric had asked me to uh, co-edit uh, 1637, The Coast of Chaos with him. Kevin? I'm Kevin Eikenberry. I write primarily science fiction and alternate history. Uh, I first met Eric in 2014, and I'll, I'll tell that story later, but it was one of those things where he was one of those individuals you just knew was going to have an impact on your life, and I never knew exactly how much it would be. So, uh, David, you worked for uh, or with Eric uh, the uh, earliest in, in any of, uh, of any of us. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about those writing that 1633 and 34 and kind of that experience of, of working with David back then? Wait a minute. Oh, there we go. I had muted my microphone without meaning to. Um, I had read um, Mother of Demons and I really liked it. Matter of fact, I was talking to Jim Bain about how much I liked it. Um, and, uh, I got, uh, Eric's, uh, contact information from him so I could tell Eric how much I liked it. Um, and we talked probably off and on for one thing or another for, I don't know, a year or two. So, um, and, uh, eventually, um, I was like, you know, why don't we do a collaboration together? And he was like, okay, which universe i mean you know and i said well you know one of yours one of mine you know kind of thing he was okay so we were talking about it before we started taping today trying to remember which came first uh crown of slaves or 1633 uh the baltic war and it was uh it was uh 
the, the Baltic War came first. So I wrote in his universe before he got around to doing a novel uh, in mine. Um, and Eric and I came at it a bit differently. Um, at that point, I was the guy who built worlds first and then put stories in them. Okay. And Eric was the guy who was like, well, the details will sort themselves out. <laughs> okay. So then he wound up in like the 1632 universe and thank God for Bajorn. I mean, you know, no, no telling where you would be in, in, in terms of continuity without somebody to ride herd on him. Paula. Yeah. But he was, um, I'm going to miss him as a collaborator, but I'm going to miss him more as a human being. Okay. I mean, that's, that's just the way it is. I mean, I was, I sold my first novel almost 10 years before he and I met. Okay. So I'm coming at this from a different perspective from most of you guys. Um, but he was one of the very few human beings who I knew, and they seem to be fewer of them of late, uh, who you could have a, who you could debate on a point that each of you knew the other one disagreed with you on without its turning into personalities or, 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 you know, if you disagree with me, you're willfully wrong. You're evil. You know, you're not just, you disagree with me. I mean, he'd say, oh, come on, Dave. I mean, sure, you you can't possibly think, you know. And I said, well, yeah, I can. <laughs> you know? and, I said, and you, you know, you, you commies like you, you know, kind of thing. Um, but incredibly generous guy. Now, when I was the one who initially proposed that we collaborate. And so he said, okay, what would you like to write in, you know, in, in, Ring of Fire, and I said, yeah. I said, yeah, uh, and I don't even know if it was officially the Ring of Fire at that point. Uh, oh, was, I think there were only two 1632 novels out when we did 1633, the Baltic War, um, and I, I said, well, I'd like to rehabilitate Simpson, and he said, he said, oh, and I said, do you have a problem with that? I said, I really only meant Simpson to be a foil for Mike. I mean, you know, that kind of thing. You can do whatever you want with him kind of thing. And when I got done with it, he was like, he was like, oh, that's, that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> uh, but uh, that was, that was my, my goal. And um, the, what actually started the whole collaboration trend with me is that he did a short story for one of the Honor Harrington anthologies called From the Highlands. And he asked me, he said, is there anything that a Havenite and a Manticorn intelligence operative could agree on in the middle of this war? And I said, yeah, they could both agree that they hate genetic slavery and genetic slavery, which is great, you know. So then he started looking for a character that I hadn't killed off or promoted, you know, <laughs> he could have used, and he settled on Anton Zawicki. Um, and that was what led to Crown of Slaves. The relationship between between Anton and Victor Kasha uh, was the was the key to making that whole novel work. And it also completely disordered the chronology that I had in mind for the Honorverse, uh, <laughs> because it pulled the whole conflict with the Mason alignment forward like twenty years from my original time frame. 
Um, and originally, honor was supposed to die uh, in the book that became at all costs, and then was supposed to resume 20 years later with her kids as like, you know, the junior officers and whatnot for the perspective. Now, when I was planning on killing Honor off, I was also only planning on there being about five books about her, you know, kind of things. I can't say that I was sorry that I didn't kill her. I mean, you know, I mean, I didn't have to move to Montana and raise rabbits under an assumed name because I didn't kill her. Uh, but it did make some interesting uh, issues uh, as the series went on. And he never, I, he never actually wrote directly in the the uh, the straight Honor verse. As, as far as the, the Honor Harrington, his, none of his characters went under his, in his books or the books he wrote with you, he, they never met Honor, right? Aside from Zilwick. Sure. On occasion. Sure. Oh, yeah, several, several of them did before this was all over. And, and it flipped the other way around. Uh, a lot of my characters from Honor Harrington. Well, okay. The last collaboration that we did, the last book I'll ever get to do with him was to end in fire. Okay. And there were some serious logistics problems in getting that book done. I mean, we were literally sitting, sending in draft while we were already getting copy edited typeset pages to proofread from the earlier part of the book because of problems that came up. And one of the problems that we had is in all the other earlier Crown of Slaves books, they'd been following along behind where the timeline had advanced to in the main series. Okay. And the way that Eric and I worked was that he wrote his portions of the books first, and then I did the military and the diplomatic stuff that was outside his and did the final edit. <laughs> well, this time around, he was breaking trail on where we were going, and he was having to use a lot of my solo characters. Gotcha. And there were issues with his understanding of the, the internal workings of the characters, which affected their viewpoints, and their viewpoints were fundamental plot points, their decisions, their actions. Uh, so there was a lot of reworking that, that needed to be done, which we did together. Um, and I think ultimately the book was the stronger for it because I had to find ways to make everything work to get to the plot points that he had laid out for, for where we were going on the basis of the notes that we'd shared before it. Well, that's, that's fascinating because it's almost the mirror image of what uh, Eric was would do with, say, me, and I, I, I suspect with uh, Chuck as well. Like he kind of steers a lot of the, the the politics and stuff. He wants to handle that himself. Yeah, mine is yeah. a and, different story. That's all I'll yeah. say. So well, yeah. so why don't you tell us a little bit about that, Chuck? Because I think well, I think David was in the middle. I don't want to. No, I would, I would, I was just I was just going to say that I personally think that to end in fire may be the best of the honorverse collaborations that we did um, for where it is and what it does. And it is also the point at which what a lot of people regard as a side series that is tangential to the honorverse, but to me was always a fundamental core element of the honorverse because the characters were moving back and forth intelligence data was affecting military decisions military decisions were affecting what was going over on over here on the covert side it brought them firmly front and center and fused them together and if that's the last honorverse book that i'm ever going to do with my friend eric that's exactly what that book needed to do yeah. 
So uh, Chuck, explain a little bit about that, because I, I think you're probably the 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 lone author that has done more collaborations with uh, Eric, at least in the 1632 universe, than anybody else, uh, as a lone individual author. Um, as as you can go back over the over his our various interviews separately and apart, and find out that uh, uh, the process with Eric was was very much one where um, we would talk about something, and he'd say, "Well, send me a proposal." That's one of our proposals. Essentially, he'd say, yeah, write that. And, and they did. Uh, that's, that's kind of what happened. And that was okay with me. Um, from the very start, um, I met Eric in um, 2009. He was, I believe, the guest of honor master of ceremonies at Lunacon, now dead Lunacon, the first of all world cons, uh, the state to which we've come. Um, and uh, and the for the guest of honor of uh, uh, another collaborator of his, um, uh, Dave Freer. And so we were in a, uh, a panel together. I'd never met him. I knew of him. I hadn't, I'd spent a lot of years not reading much um, because I was away from the career and had just sort of re-entered it. And uh, he, we were, we were talking about writing action and I come in it from a very cinematic standpoint. Um, and so uh, I, I, and for those of, for those folks who have, may have heard this story before, forgive me, but it's, I only have one first meeting of Eric's story and it, 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 um, it, 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 it boiled down to this. I, I, I talked about, you know, the, the way things should get shorter and crisper as you move deeper into the action and you never want to go back and reintroduce elements because it blows the flow. And at the end of this, and at this time, Eric was uh, doing, uh, Bain's Jim Bain's universe, and he he leaned. Up. I was at one end of this table. Eric was all the way at the other, and he leaned over, and he said, "Have you sent me something?" I said, uh, "No." He said, "Well, do." And that was uh, <laughs> and and so we we got out in the hall, and then and then the 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 histrionic gruffness fell away. And he said, you know, I really mean that. And I really would like that. And I said, I, you know, maybe we could, you want to write something for 6032? And I said, well, I, yeah, I, I think I might. And he said, well, and then he immediately tries to unsell the entire thing. You know, he said, because he had learned in the course of that conversation, I'd already been published in, in War World, you know, Purnell series and, and Analog and, and places like that. And he said, you know, I can't guarantee it'll get, it'll get published or picked up. That if it does, it might actually then get in the year's best, you know, the Grant Blue Gazette collection. And he said, but I, but I, I can't promise it. You, you've already got credits. I said, look, I'm coming back in after a, damn, a, a long hiatus. And I consider myself a journeyman and lucky for any opportunity, but particularly to work with you. And so um, I wrote this thing that actually never saw the light of day. He liked it. He wanted to use it. What he didn't know was that there's somebody else not far down the Hollywood squares from me that was contracted to write a novel that was gonna take place in the new year. I'd of course been watching the number of contracts piling up behind that individual and wondered if this would ever happen. So I innocently set something in the Caribbean and that entire section having to do with the wild geese was actually going to originally be a novella that was gonna appear in there. But I, I always kind of thought that it had, it, it, it had, it had larger implications in terms of the, the strategy of, of the, all of the strategy. 
uh, because it dealt with oil when you get right down to it and the Spanish and the new world, you know, that that's probably going to raise a few eyebrows and, and potentials here and there. And uh, he was just outstanding to work with. Uh, yes, because for me, I actually, I don't dislike the process of working close and inter iteratively with an author. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, I sometimes I enjoy it. I, there's stuff you learn out of that. But as a new author jumping in, because um, at this point I had just, I think, finished, you know, where, wherever, wherever David Weber has gone, wherever his shadow has fallen, look for me not long after or, or not too long after, because when he left, when he left the Starfire series, lo and behold, <laughs> there I was. Um, so, so, so obviously my clipping service and, and, you know, covert operatives watching his house and, and life have paid off for me. Um, but at any rate, uh, the, the, um, the, the result of working with Eric was that he just gave me total freedom. Uh, he, you know, papal stakes, which was a, which was an 11th hour call in the person originally who was going to write that was unable to do so. I jumped in, I had a ball doing it. He gave me huge freedom. That was the only book in which he ever made any, any significant change, um, which was, he said, he didn't like the person that I originally had, um, who, who, who becomes a sort of new focal character at midpoint. He felt that that person was sort of added in too late. And ultimately, I think he was right. He wanted to rewrite it. I said, no, no, I got it. Then I got to do something. I said, you, you have, you just have. So I went and I wrote that and it, um, and it became the novel it was and did well enough. And um, it's, it's, you know, I was, I was fortunate enough to start off with, uh, you know, uh, bestsellers, uh, national bestsellers uh, and, and, uh, and um, Wall Street Journal and, you know, how can you ask for a better career launch than that? Thank you, David. Thank you. Well, thank you, David Weber, because Starfire <laughs> did too. Um, but, uh, but Eric Flint, who was always there to talk to, and, and in addition to giving me a lot of freedom in terms of the story, like essentially saying, go do it. If I have a problem, I'll let you know. Part of that was because we also, I think, saw, I wouldn't say that our politics are anything like uh, in a in, in any, they are certainly not clones of each other. That's, I think, yeah. that's a that's a safe understatement. Um, but it is, uh, but it is safe to say that, that I think we saw a lot of the same. We, we had a same sense of the paradigms in which the world moves and always has moved in terms of the way humans get along and don't, and 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 also the uh, the. The, the constant dogging factor. One of the things he said right away to me, he said, I like this when I broke a plane and then I broke other things because one of the things I think that a lot of folks do in series, particularly when they're fans writing in the series is they want everything to work. You know, it's, it's sort of like the, 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 the RPG uh, sort of model of the person lets everything to go just to plan and life never does. And, and so that was something that, an example, a small example of the ways that we just saw dynamics in the world and in fiction as being very much the same. And uh, I imagine we'll get around to talking about, you know, just all the time I, you know, we, we all spent with him and just the amount of time on the phone. And, and I, I never looked to become somebody involved in the high politics of the series, and, but that's what happens. So. Well, let me, let me throw something out here. Eric and I both believe that there's a responsibility to pay forward. 
Um, and in most, a lot of the collaborations that I've chosen, uh, collaborators that I've chosen to work with, I've chosen people who I felt were potentially excellent standalone writers in their own right. And it was kind of a, okay, if I can mentor, if I can, if I can help you find your feet, you know, et cetera. And also Eric and I were both aware that we have perishable skill sets. I mean, they're, they're gone. I mean, Eric's gone now. His are gone with him. Okay. Mine will leave when I leave. So anything that we could pass along first uh, was, was a net plus, not just for us, not just for the other writer, but for the field. Okay. Um, and Eric, I think, spread his wings wider in that respect. Uh, the only person I can think of who probably even came close was Mike Resnick uh, and, and his role in, in nurturing authors as an editor and so forth. Uh, and I don't think even Mike had the, the breadth that, that Eric did. Now, Mike's were spread out over more different uni literary universes. Okay, he was working in different places. But Eric was, for him, the story process was front and center. Absolutely front and center. But working with the other authors very, very closely approximated in importance to him the story itself okay um and that's not what you're going to see in a lot of collaborations especially not collaborations that are designed to increase output rather than tell good stories do you know what i'm saying yeah. eric was constitutionally incapable of not telling the best story that he could, whether it was a solo or a collaboration. Okay, sometimes he probably fell short of what he wanted to accomplish because we all do, all right? But that was a, the basic stopping and starting point for him. Yeah, the core. Yeah. Uh, and that's that, that kind of segues nicely into talking to Bjorn about the, the Granville Gazette and the, the experience there. I, I believe that was started in about the same time, 2006, or was that about appropriate, Bjorn? Or? I would have to look that up, but it became a regular um, every 60 days thing with issue 11 in 2010. Right. So and tell us more about how you got involved in all that. Uh, I, I had uh, found my way to Bain's Bar uh, and realized that these people were writing for this series and that anybody could play. And I was like, this is pretty cool. So I had tried my hand at a couple of things and they hadn't gone terribly well. Uh, and then um, I found one that I could write. I sold it. And in 2014, I think I had maybe three stories or so. Uh, and Paula Goodlett, who is at editing the Gazette at the time said, Hey, there's some things I could use some help with. And I was, didn't know what I was doing. And I said, sure. What do you need help with? Oh, you she, fool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she said, basically I need an assistant editor. And I'm like, Oh, what goes into that? 
And she says, well, well you're, go you're, wrong. <laughs> you're coming to the con this year, right? And it's like, where is it? Columbus, Ohio. And I'm like, I guess I'm coming to the con this year. So I had been there for about 10 minutes, met Paula, and Eric Flint walks around the corner. She introduces us, and Eric looks at me. He says, we need to talk. And about 10 minutes later, we're down in food court grabbing, uh, grabbing some burgers, and he's explaining to me what he's looking for in, for an assistant editor in the Gazette. And that was that. Um, he turned me loose to, to work with Paula from there. And uh, he had this very strong feeling that the publisher hires the editor and writes the checks and otherwise lets the editor do their thing. Uh, so it's very, very rare that, that he'll do, you know, he'll have anything to say about what we're doing in the Gazette. And most of it is because some point came up where we felt we had to appeal to him and say, Hey, can we get a ruling on something? And how many uh, issues of the Granville Gazette are we up to now? We're working on one of three right now. So it, and it became a, uh, uh, bi-monthly, right? That's, uh... Yes. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's they slowed it down a little bit, but they've been around for a while. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure, but I think that it, just at the 1632 universe is at 12 or 16 million somewhere in there words. And is that appropriate? Is that right? I did some fast math um, around the beginning of the year and came up with 14 million. And it was really back of the envelope stuff. People have some larger figures out there that I'm willing to believe. And so you're, uh, you came in from the, mostly from just having written a couple of short stories and then uh, being uh, tapped by Paula, who was uh, mm-hmm. her nickname when I came on and wrote my first short story uh, for the Granville Gazette was uh, the butcher of, of Grantville, <laughs> uh, but she really enjoyed uh, having uh, uh, that title appelled to her. Uh, she was career uh, enlisted uh Air Force, I believe. So she, she mm-hmm. had a, a hard-nosed uh, manner of, of uh, working with folks. Um, mm-hmm. So then I'm very later, happy that the pen color was red. <laughs> and then, uh, so you uh, went along and eventually started to, uh, you wrote uh, a couple of shorts and edit, helped edit the Coast of Chaos. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And how'd that come about? Um, Eric had this contract for something that was just known as the North American Anthology, and it had been hanging there for some years. And um, he and some others had been talking about how we were going to proceed with it. And I think it was Walt Boyce um, suggested uh, my name, and Eric called me up one day and started explaining that there was this anthology that that where he could really use a co-editor and and, uh like you you guys have said he started talking the project down a little bit and i'm like oh no no i'll do it i'll do it really um and then uh we contacted the authors that had already been writing in north america to get them in on it and despite eric uh in in rick boatwright's words uh Eric's presence near technology could cause it to fail in ways that Rick hadn't seen before. 
But despite that, he approved putting all these authors on Discord in a group, and we started talking there, and we kind of we kind of came up with a little bit different vision than um, he had initially presented. I mean, he he laid down some some pretty good guidelines at the beginning, but things went off in a direction that wasn't exactly what we talked about before, and Eric just let people run with it. Uh, there was a scene in one of my book, uh, one of my stories where he stepped in and he said, no, this, this event right here, this needs to be changed. And it was maybe a page. Uh, but other than that, uh, he didn't say anything along the lines of, I don't like where you guys are going or you're doing it wrong. He, he just said, uh, you know, he, he made sure that we were all adhering to you know, the overall vision. Uh, and I, I think he liked seeing what people did with this universe. Yeah, I think, I think he did. And I think also for those of us who knew him, you know, there's nobody would ever accuse him of having a weak ego in the most positive sense of the word. But it's really difficult for an author, especially the senior author in a project, to step back and say, you guys run with it and not want to take the wheel uh, along the way. Um, It's a very difficult thing for me to do. Uh, I think it came naturally to Eric that that he could do that. Well, it kind of, it messed with his ideology, right? I mean, it's... Yeah. If, if I'm if I'm steering things, cool. But once I've truly trained you how to do things or in accordance with the, the laws of the universe, then yeah. you should be able to do it. And, but there were occasions where I, I have known him to say, Jesus Christ. Yeah. I can't yeah. believe yeah. you I just told them to not, you know. <laughs> he would occasionally like, okay, I got it. And then he'd get himself under control okay. before he talked to that author. Yeah, and let them know that hey, you, you got to get back, get in your lane, <laughs> get back yeah. in the field. Um, so yeah, that's that's one of the neat things. The, the, the thing about the Granville Gazette and the anthologies, the multiple anthologies, Chuck, myself, uh, uh, so many people have written in in the universe now. I think it's more than two hundred authors have, have gotten their uh, either their first check or a check at professional rates from the Granville Gazette. Uh, and you know, for some that was just a lifelong ambition. Uh, for others, it was an achievement and a stepping stone to the next thing. So really remarkable. Uh, I wanted to bring Kevin in on this too because the his uh, he had an idea and it kind of it's 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 neat how the way it kind of tracked along uh, with alongside Eric's uh, vision for the 1632 universe and the Asidi shards. Uh, all, all that. And please uh, uh, let us know a little bit about how you came to interact with uh, Eric. So I met Eric in 2014 at the Superstars Writing Seminar. And that's a business-focused seminar for writers that uh, Kevin J. Anderson and friends put on every year here in Colorado Springs. And I think it was the, it was the very first day. It was the second, second session, and it was Eric discussing contracts. And he had one of his Bain contracts, and he went through the contract clause by clause and, and really gave you a, a kind of a class on how this works. And in his, in his typical, very gruff uh, way, 
Uh, but I think pretty much everybody in the audience could kind of see through the curmudgeon bit, but, and saw that he really kind of cared about what he was doing. But at the end of that class, he made a promise that if anybody had a bad contract to send it to him. And aside from the, the rest of the story, I'll tell about that later on that summer, I got an offer for the first novel, my, my debut novel, Sleeper Protocol. And I sent Eric an email like, Hey, were you, were you serious about this thing you said at the end of your class? And he's like, send me the damn contract. <laughs> so I sent him the contract. And of course he, he basically gave me a master's degree at that point in how to read a contract. And I turned that contract down and ended up signing with another publisher a few months later. Uh, but at the, the course of the seminar, one of the events that you can also do is a dinner event. And uh, I had elected to try to sit with Eric. And so I had an opportunity to sit at his table and it was a small group and uh, really was just a fun conversation to, to kind of get to know everybody and and tell a little bit more about Eric because his story had fascinated me because uh, kind of like him, I was coming into writing uh, pretty late. I mean, I was in my 30s at this point and I wanted to do more writing, but it was something I wasn't quite sure how to do. And I'd sold some short stories and I'd done I'd written the original draft of that that first novel. And at the end of the dinner, uh, I was standing there next to him. Everybody was putting on their jackets. And like most writers, I had a, a list of ideas at some point that I was going to try to do something with. And at the top of that list was uh, one that I, I still to this day can't believe that I actually had the courage to ask him. Um, so it's, it's kind of a long running joke in my family that I had told my kid, my parents, that when I was like four or five years old, that I was with George Washington when he threw a coin across the Delaware. <laughs> and it's kind of become a running family joke for, you know, the last 50 years. And, but I had the idea that what if the coin that he had done was a bicentennial quarter? And I said, Eric, I, I've got this idea and I don't know how to write it. It's, it's alternate history kind of thing. And it's not up my, my not up my alley. I don't know what to do. And he was like, well, what's the idea? And so I told him and his eyes lit up and he says, let's go to lunch tomorrow. And I went from having a harebrained idea to the next day I'm having lunch with Eric and his marching orders at the end of that lunch were, you know, we're going to get back together in a year. He said, just let it, let it rest, give it some thought. You've got other projects that you're working on, uh, which turned out to be kind of prescient because a week later I nearly died. <laughs> Uh, I came down with an infection that uh, it was a necrotizing fasciitis, a skin and bacterial infection that tried to eat my right leg. And I was hospitalized for a bit and spent a, a lot of time in recovery. And so I didn't really have a chance to do much with that book, but I had learned enough with superstars that I went back and did the edits on that first uh, novel and then ended up selling it later that year. So in 2015, we reconvene at Superstars and with the idea, we're going we're gonna to talk about this a little bit more. Well, it just so happened that Tony Weisskopf was one of the guests at Superstars that year. And so as I was talking with Eric about this stuff, he said, well, I think, I think Bain would take this. So why don't you, Tony does this thing at this, at this seminar and it, it's going to be uh, uh, pitch letters. You need to write a pitch letter and talk to Tony. So I schedule an appointment, talk to Tony, and I've written up this whole pitch about this idea that Eric and I have talked about. And Tony kind of looks at it and goes, well, if you can get Eric Flint on board, then I'm in. <laughs> and so then that was the idea at that point was, okay, we're going to actually sit down and we're going to co-write this. And so uh, the idea was that uh, we were going to try to come back together in like December, January of that year and get some things down before we got back to Superstar so we could kind of see where we were going. That was Eric's first bout with cancer. And so he ended up missing Superstars in 2016. And then in 2017, about, well, about halfway through the 2016, he says, get me a manuscript. 
And so I got to work and I just decided I was going to go ahead and write. And so the idea came down that it would be, I would write a novel and then Eric would write a tie-in story with one of my characters that I created that was monitoring the project back here in the, in the normal timeline as things went forward. Uh, I think the thing that really blew my mind about the entire experience was as we were talking through this idea and I trying to understand that the world building and the mechanics and all of this, Eric was the one he said, well, this isn't a city shards book. He said, are you familiar with this? And at that point, I told him, I said, no, I'm not. So he sent me to read Time Spike, and I went and read 1632 and 1633 and so forth and down the road so I could get an idea of what this was. But for him to, to offer up uh, essentially a place in the universe to me, uh, just based on an idea, was mind-blowing. And being able to, to work with him, uh, just it was an incredible experience. Neat. Yeah, and that's I, I've had similar experiences with with Eric. I mean, I came I the talking about story pitches and that kind of thing. That they have snarking the plots for sixteen thirty two at the Ring of Fire Minicon, and I, I had published my first short story with uh, Granville Gazette, uh, and I was feeling my oats as it were. And I'm in the audience, and I'm a big war gamer, right? So uh, I play Total War, and I played Total War Empire, which is a lot of fun. But in that, you can uh, contest against the Mughals to, to take over India. And so I'm in there and I'm like, when was the Taj Mahal built? I'm thinking to myself as they're talking about things that are going on and everything. And I, I find it was 1630X. Oh, well, this is cool. It's, you know, the building of it went on during that whole time. So I raised my hand. I asked, so what's going on in the uh, in Mughal Empire at this time? Or who's doing anything with the Mughals? I don't know. Write it. Challenge me, will you? <laughs> and that literally was I, I was there. I heard it. I was sitting yeah. at the table up next to Eric. Yeah. Uh, and 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 the one thing I'll I'll contextualize. Griff sounded because Griff is Griff is a, a very assertive individual. He said, "What's going on in the Mughal? What what's that about?" So it was a little bit of a little bit of a challenge, but it was a kind of challenge. But I think Eric knew it was a totally respectful challenge, and he, he said exactly that. It's like. I don't know, write it. You know, and it's like, and it was, it's like, okay, well, we've seen another contracting career happen yeah. right here, right now, real time on to the next, you know? Yeah. Well, that was one of the neat things about Eric was that, that again, the trust, the ability to build trust both ways and execute uh, was just phenomenal. Even when he was ill, uh, you know, he would crank pages, you know, he, I'm, I'm trying to work on it. I'm trying to get it. He'd always be conscious of like, like Hey, my schedule right now, I can't do anything. So you have something else going on, right? You can, you can try, you have other projects you're working on, right? If you need any help with those, I can try and, you know, make a, put in a word or something. Always, always, always generous with his time uh, in all avenues of, uh, of the business, as well as the, uh, the actual writing. And it's, it's funny for me that that I, I, a lot of that, like the, when Kevin was talking about the contract stuff, I mean, that's, what a labor organizer does, right? He's, he's supposed to be looking out for everybody who's in his shop. The shop steward's supposed to be looking out for everybody, reading the contract and going, oh, this retirement plan sucks. You know? <laughs> I could just see him doing that uh, in, in, your, in that environment, Kevin, that you're talking about, but also in uh, you know, all the workshops that he worked in for uh, his career. The other thing I, think that, that, I, have, I think I have his email back to me that's printed out someplace. It was like six pages long about all, why not to sign this contract and what clauses were a bunch of crap and, and how and how to read that going forward. I mean, it was amazing. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm it sure was, we... it was also insight into him, too, because when he writes letters like that, 
he would very often in the middle of a, a paragraph would be a whole episode. It would start with, this is crap. And I got to tell you why this is crap. And I've seen it be crap. And then he's going to tell you the story of what he actually saw. And then he'll come back down to the end. And it's almost like him sort of leaning back in the chair and saying, so it's crap. You know? <laughs> it's like, oh. yep. and, and it kind of feeds back into what David was saying earlier, too, about just, you know, he could contest with you on really sharp issues and really strongly contest. I mean, it was like I watched him and uh, I will remember they were main nameless. They, they went toe to toe and, you know, rah, 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 rah. and then it was like, hey, that was fun. And let's go have dinner. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing is, is not a, a skill that we often see exhibited today i'm sure there's people yeah. out there that have it but well, the consistency with which he displayed it was impressive yeah. eric eric reminds me very much of something that william buckley jr i think chuck you've heard me tell this before uh, uh, uh an obituary a testimony that he wrote to a friend of his who he'd known for like 50 50 60 years and of course buckley was sort of the quintessential wasp um and his friend was uh what uh was was a uh berkeley educated jew okay and they didn't agree on a single thing politically really seriously they agreed on objectives they didn't agree on means if you follow what i'm saying mm -hmm. but at the end of his testimonial to his friend he said and I want to thank him for 50 years of shared love, laughter, friendship, and fiercely honest intellectual debate. Okay. Um, and that is a skill set that we seems to be an awful short supply right now. Um, and Eric had it. Okay. I mean, you know, I can't begin to tell you the number of conversations that i had with him that eric and i were both historians okay we both understood the historical process um in 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 much the same way uh we both uh we we, we had very common views on human dignity on on human potential human achievement and the ability of human beings to be scumbags okay um and yet, from that common shared knowledge and understanding of history, we had evolved different uh, political philosophies, okay? But I think one of the things that we had both done was we had both evolved a political philosophy which said, as one of its primary early propositions, I am not the sole recipient of received truth, okay? Um, and so it was it was a comfortable fit for us on the basis of our shared knowledge and love of history to go back and say yeah but see you're looking at that and here's what you're seeing and i'm looking at it and here's what i'm seeing and the other guy is like well okay i can see where you're getting that you're full of shit but i understand where you're getting that you know and that, that <laughs> was that was at the core of uh, of the reason why the 1632 universe and other shared universes that he did, that was at the core because he realized and, and enacted the fact that if I'm going to make this a universe, I'm going to need as many points of view as humanly possible in order to make it realistic for as many people as possible uh, in their perceptions of it. 
something that um, I'm not sure. I may have been the, in 1633 the first to to work this into the in actually into the narrative. Uh, but something that he and I had talked about before I wrote the book, and I'm sure he talked about it with you guys, is the fact that the most left-wing imaginable 20th, 21st century American and the most right-wing imaginable have more in common with each other than anybody in the 17th century. Yes. Uh, or for the, that matter, in most countries of the world today. Okay. And so when I wanted to, to, to rehabilitate Simpson, it wasn't because I thought Simpson was a paragon of virtue, certainly not the way that he'd been written, the behavior that he demonstrated in the first book. But I wanted to be that other viewpoint that has more in common with Mike Starnes than either of them have with the 17th century around them, if, if you see what I'm saying. Um, and Eric understood that. Eric valued that. I think he had a greater tendency to do that in his characters in the 1632 universe to, to, to embrace that than he did with the characters that he created for the Honorverse. Hmm. His characters in the Honorverse all fit very much the same template, even if they come from different national origins. But part of that was because I was writing so much that was from the aristocratic viewpoint or from the Solarian viewpoint or whatever. So Eric was being the, the contrarian, if you will, uh, injecting that. And I was delighted to see it. I was, you know, it was like, just like Eric was welcoming Simpson being rehabilitated. Okay. What he did with, with, uh, with, uh, with Victor and Anton and, and company. Now, every so often. I did have to kind of rein him in a little bit with Kathy Montaigne. Okay, I'm just saying, you know, it's just every so often I'd say, Eric, I don't think she can get away with that. And he'd go, oh, why not? I'd say, because the Star Kingdom. <laughs> and I'd say, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, sort of thing. But it was, um, I don't want to say that Eric was contrarian, but he was in the best sense of the word okay the ability to to test with with a countervailing viewpoint and the willingness to be convinced especially where the story was concerned okay yeah. um he was in we both were insistent that if we have a character doing something it has to be a natural aspect of that character's life. You can't just have him do something or her do something because you need it to happen for the purposes of the story. Right. Um, but we could agree that in, you know, in situation A, this person coming from this background would have this. I mean, it wasn't something that we, you know, parsed out this way. But in essence, what we were saying is this person coming from background A is going to have this approach to the problem and is going to react to it this way and this person coming from background b is going to have this response to it is going to react that way and make them work together or find another way to get to that point right. um it was eric was good i i i think eric was even better at the architectural 
side of things, building the the overarching structure of something like 1632. But he was a pretty fair brick mason too, once you got into actually writing the stories. Um, I, I do think that in some ways, the one thing that was frustrating about working with Eric was that it goes back to, you were talking about Rick Boatwright, okay, and, and Eric and technology. Um, where computers are concerned, um, Eric was the living embodiment of Clark's Law, that any sufficiently advanced technology is magic, because he's probably one of only three or four people on the face of the planet who are less informed on computers than, 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 than I am. Okay, there's a reason that I have an IT guy and I call him and say, it's not working. And he says, well, did you try turning it on? And I'm like, yes, <laughs> I did, you know. But anyway, um, so here's Eric and he's writing in the Honorverse and he wants to write about super hackers who are doing this or doing that or doing the other. And I'm going, Eric, you can't get there from here, you know. And he's like, well, you can't. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm like no. Uh, so I'm like, I'm like, okay, but let me think about this. And I go away and I come back with a way to get to the same point, but doing it in a different way. Um, it made the stories a whole lot stronger because I probably wouldn't have had them trying to do that in the first place because I said, there's no way you can do this. Okay. So he's now established as part of the plot points that he wants to develop. Well, they get this information and I'm like, Okay, fine. I have to figure out a way to get the information. Um, and it was a situation in which he was essentially, by irritating the hell out of me by doing this, he was pushing me to to produce a much better story. Okay, and he was he was perfectly. You know, he's like, well, of course, I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> yeah, I'll make it work. And I was like, okay, fine. Um, but he was. He was Eric. Okay. I mean, the, at the end of the day, um, Eric Flint was this combination of, of traits, of generosity, of optimism. Uh, even when he was being at his most cynical, he was, it was his cynicism was the product of his optimism. Okay, his belief that we can get to this better place and his cynicism about the people who he saw being in the way at, at, at any given moment. Um, and you couldn't take any aspect of that fusion away without the entire thing coming unglued from the Eric that, that we knew. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you guys know what I'm saying. I'm probably not saying it clearly enough for the people who didn't know him to really oh. appreciate what I'm saying here. So so early on in, in my experience of, of Eric and his experience mm -hmm. of me, um, uh, I, I found it interesting. He said, well, you know, I'm a communist. I was like, hmm, you're a very successful capitalist for being a communist. And he said, well, yeah, I guess I'm not. So the bottom line is over time, over I would say a course of the, of, not immediately, probably after a year or so after we started working together on novel and then over the course of the next year and a half, it sort of, it sort of morphed that, 
Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, well, I'm not really a communist. I'm, I'm a Trotskyite yeah. because those damn Bolsheviks. Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and what was, and then it's like, but at the end of the day, anybody can get it wrong. It's just, it's just Marxism. And then it was, it's dialectic process. And it's like, so I don't really hear an ideologue here. Uh, I hear an anti-ideologue here. And, uh, but, but it, it's kind of interesting the way he would, as, as, as Bourne said, he talked down a story or something like that. Sometimes I got, I get the feeling that Eric would throw out the most contentious or provocative possible view or characterization of himself as, as the lead, just to see what, what would happen. And, and I think one of two things, he was happy with one of two things. Um, no, I'll start this way. There was one thing he did not like at that moment, a, a, a screen as blank as a test pattern. <laughs> a day in television when we had day in television yeah uh, you know. <laughs> boy am i dating myself now yeah um but uh, but he was happy with somebody who comes back but not antagonistically who did exactly what what you're talking about david that that you can have these sort of really engaged they don't quite get to heat not serious heat it's sort of like yeah i can't believe a guy as smart as you could think that way sort of thing you know which is still at the same time that it's heat it's it's also an acknowledgement of the fact that we're, we're two people of capability talking about that. So he never dehumanized. He, he never used I, that as a dehumanization token. Yeah. He never used it as a superiority court or anything like yeah. that. But the one last thing, the other thing he liked is somebody who would, who would, who would and this was the way I reacted to him, was like, oh, really? Well, what about... <laughs> and and you get this sort of meet this this cascade of self-moderation that occurred <laughs> i i will say the one time that he and i had a heated discussion and it was it was heated i found out later that he had just had a very confrontational encounter on the same topic like literally within hours of of our uh talking about it um and i was like whoa where's my friend eric you know when he he just he went off and it was actually a fairly mild statement on my part um and um we're like i was like okay fine you know we, we you know we'll agree to disagree on this you know and go on and he called me up he phoned me like two days later and he said, hey, I just wanted to, you know, and I was an asshole. <laughs> I was like, Eric, you were not an asshole. You, you, you were pissed. Okay. And I didn't know why, but it's okay. <laughs> and that was... I'm, I'm going to make two predictions based on that. One, <laughs> whether it took a day or a week or a month, he was going to get there. Yeah. Two, the speed with which it occurred probably had something to do with a conversation with Lou. Yeah, it probably <laughs> did. <laughs> you know. Because there was one point where Eric said it was the first change. He said, well, this is just stupid you know, about, about something in Papal Stakes. And I, I was like, he, he wrote that. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. And then he went off on a rant about commandos. And, and everybody has their own mythologies and their and their own heroes and stuff like this so eric was very much wedded to the idea of the, the word commando was being misused it really had more to do with the board had actually i the bottom line was that he was resisting the idea that i think he had a problem with um with with highly trained 
elite units and the, and that they were they're touted to be all that so in the course of our relationship I managed to slip in these little historical things, which suggested that that too might be an oversimplification in the other direction. They are not the, the be all and end all to military solutions, but they exist for a reason and not just to, to, you know, to do something with taxpayer or surf money as the case may be. And, uh, but, but I learned later on that he, uh, he hastened to, to, he called instead of writing, he said, but then I also learned that he'd spoken to Lou. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so there's, there's that. I, but, uh, he, he, uh, he did some uh, pretty interesting stuff just generally about that. Like, you know, when talking about somebody staking out a position, the very first time I met him was with uh, Alistair Kimball and I. So we have the FBI agent and the cop talking to the communist. And like he literally was like sitting between us, going, <laughs> "I just don't know who I am." <laughs> and, and then in later conversations, the the thing that always struck me was that he had reason to not like cops. Yeah, His but he never judged not been me good in a lot of ways. Yeah, he never judged me on those reasons. Yeah, well, I have to say that one thing that. Oh, God, that Eric and I went round and round about was firearms. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, you remember the shot that Julie Starnes takes that wounds, uh, oh, what's his name? Our, our Czech. Uh, Wallenstein. Yes. Okay. I have a friend at Thunder Ranch. It was at Thunder Ranch at the time. And so I sort of cut and pasted and sent that whole episode to him and his response was dave god couldn't have made that shot okay standing freehand that many yards you know the whole nine yards god couldn't have made that shot so i told eric i said eric you know i've been telling you i had some okay let me just lay this out for you he said it's impossible and i said pretty much the way you did it. And he said, well, I was really just thinking of it as like a really long range thought shot. And I'm like, what it was, Eric was like an ultra long range shot. He said, Oh, well, I'll have to not do that in the future. <laughs> you know, God. <laughs> that was, that was Eric. And I hadn't really thought about it, but that was kind of like his computer hackers, you know, in, in a way. And I was thinking about you're talking, you're mentioning, you know, the elite commandos and so forth. Think about the number of elite commandos who weren't commandos that he created. Okay. He, he, he his mythology was that they rose up through a process more like the Balkan partisans. Yes. Yeah. I understand, but I'm just saying, oh, you I know, know. That... I, I, I right there yeah. with you. <laughs> yeah. What's what you got, Bjorn? Um, Eric took those words to heart, though, and, and he was very um, one of the few times that he did intervene in stories was when people were taking wildly improbable shots and he would say, we need to tone this down. So, so once it was pointed out, he, he very much internalized that. Yeah, that's um, really true. That's yeah. really, really true. I saw that time and time again with him. Uh, and, and you would think because he puts up such a strong front that he would, it would take a long time for that to internalize and become actually part of a revised 
perception of the world, of fictional world, but it really didn't. It happened in, in, with remarkable really? speed yeah. and true engagement, true engagement. He really, he really, that was his, he owned it. Well, I'll, I'll tell you something. I saw that in him from day one when he and I were working on From the Highlands and we were talking about it and he was venturing into my universe and we were talking about the rules, you know, that applied. I mean, not the rules of writing, but the, the constraints of the universe and whatnot. Um, he was, um, no one should ever make the mistake of thinking that Eric Flint had a wishy-washy molecule anywhere in his body, okay? uh but he was adaptive he was for somebody for somebody who a lot of folks talking to him might think of as doctrinaire when he starts announcing he's a communist or a trotskyite or whatever uh he was one of the most inherently flexible human beings yeah. yep. uh who who i ever i ever knew um and i have sometimes wondered frankly if one of the reasons why he kind of throws out that confrontational thing is less to evoke reactions than as protective coloration for his flexibility. If you see what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. I, I think yeah. it was a test. It was a test. Oh, I'm sure that was part of it. No, yeah, it was a, you know. it was no, a, Eric, I think it was double duty. Yeah. 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 All, of, was, all of the above. All right? of the above. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You know, I, at least in my case, I heard it, his voice in the edits that he did on the crossing, you know, because I think that the first thing that he put in the manuscript was highlighted in yellow. What are you doing here, Kevin? And I'm like, I don't know. What was I doing? <laughs> but then you go a little bit further on, and I, I would think that his his sworn enemy was melodrama. He hated the idea of anything being melodramatic. And so he's making points about this, this is melodramatic, and you just stop doing this and stop doing this. And about halfway through the manuscript, I hit this, this spot, and there's like a page and a half in yellow. And I'm thinking, this is it. This is when he's going to tell me that this is the biggest piece of crap he's ever seen. And, and it says, oh, I know what you're doing here. You're trying to solve all these problems in one damn book. And this is not one damn book. <laughs> Here's how we're going to write sequels. And you're going to pitch all this stuff. And that was the last edit in the first draft. <laughs> wow. Neat. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that came up uh, as we were discussing all this is that, you know, Eric uh, sold his first novel at uh, the age of 50 um, and kind of wanted to hit everybody up. And we can start with Kevin and kind of work around uh, back the way we went through the order as to when was the first sale that you made? Uh, and when was the, perhaps the first short, uh, first novel as opposed to short story or something like that, if that's the order of uh, things for you? Sure, so I sold my uh, first short story in 2011 at the age of 31, and then uh, sold the first novel in 2014. Um, and then the, the first Bane book was, you know, just a couple of years ago, so. And you, Bjorn? Uh, first short story in, I believe it was 2010 at 40, and first novel last year at 51. So, and you, Chuck? So, um, I had been working and, and getting things published for pittances um, until, I mean, started like David uh, will, will no doubt tell. Uh, he also, he and I both had sales first in gaming. Um, I believe. And for me, my first professional sale was um, in Warworld, uh, Jerry Purnell's Warworld in, I was 31. 
and um, and then the first novel sale uh, was uh, two thousand nine. So that's uh, and so that so that made me uh, forty nine at the time that I sold my first novel. The first, um, all right, okay. First segue here for a minute. Um, I supported myself as a professional writer from the time I was seventeen, but I was doing uh, public relations. I was doing newspaper articles uh, and that kind of thing. But leaving that aside, talking strictly about fiction, okay. Uh, my first professional sale would have been in my mm, mid twenties, probably was when I first got involved with, uh, with Starfire, uh, with the original Task Force Games uh, team. Um, the first, uh, first non-wargaming-related, uh, well, except that it was still wargaming-related because it was uh, Insurrection with Steve White, uh, the first novel, uh, we sold in uh, 89. Uh, and I was 36 when we sold the book. I was 37 uh when when it finally came out um by the time insurrection published bain had bought four more novels from me that were all in the in the pipeline uh to come along behind it which put me in a position that a lot of writers aren't to quit my day job fairly early on because there was enough stuff going on uh my mother uh, who took a master's degree in American literature back in the in the early 40s, uh, went back to college to get her PhD in literature uh, when she retired. And one of the people who was at Georgia State University where she was teaching while she was working on her PhD was Sprague DeCamp and his wife. Wow. Um, and uh, so she mentioned at one of them, she mentioned me and, and the age and he's a baby he's a baby <laughs> okay um but that was the first honor harrington novels uh were written the year before the internet officially went online um and those are the changes that i have seen in the industry that most of you guys because you came in 20 years after that, you know, um, uh, not so much. I was, um, well, and, and Eric, in his instance, it was, he was 50. Uh, it was, uh, I, I think mother of demons was, was that 99 or was that? That was 2000 and hang on a second. Hang on a second. I happen to have it sitting here, which means that, Oh, my phone is turned on too. Um, hang on a second. The original publication date on it was 1997. 97. Okay. Yeah. Because then 99 was 1632, I think, or 2002. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. And, and, but yet he was 50. And one of the things that just strikes me about that is that, yeah, uh, David, you have adapted over time and, and had like a, a youth that started in it. And then, and yet Eric seemed to have accomplished so much yeah. uh, and, you know, being a, uh, a, a crusty old man or on the approach of, of being a crusty old man or feeling that coming on. I just, I find it so remarkable that he was so adaptive and so uh, positive towards uh, new ideas and new things that were coming down the road, uh, even in technology. <laughs> well, what, one of the things about Eric that 
this truly was his second career. Okay, his first career was the the labor organizer, you know, and and I don't know that he ever conceptualized it this way, but I kind of did. Okay, he spent like the first 30 years of his professional life paying his dues. Okay, I mean, I think that's how it came together. That's how I regarded it. Okay, Uh, that he he put his money where his mouth was all right he did that i think in everything that he approached in life but some people who want to write they're substituting life experience they're substituting what they're writing for actual life experience okay um there are in their books they've they are vicariously getting to do the things that they didn't do that may have made a difference in people's lives eric was the other way around okay he had invested big time in making differences in people's lives all right and then he was writing all this stuff that celebrates human accomplishment and human achievement um and i think that part of what gives it the perspective that it had from him Why is there a silence? (laughs) Because we're listening. What's Ah, interesting is that uh, Eric, I didn't know this until actually within the last year or two, um, he had started a novel. Um, He was an an early adapter, uh, adopter of D&D, it turns out. This was that I had known for a little while. and you can see one of a fairly late picture of him clearly refereeing for two of his children in the family collage. And he's like, he's leaning over and he's, he's peering at the, you know, it's like making a, a, a judicious decision. Um, but he had apparently written the first half. I don't know how much of it, it survived in final form of the Joe's world novel uh before he started grad school and he sort of you know was like well it was going to be this or that and you know there was was no immediate hope for joe's world so off he went but um you know it's it's kind of interesting because i think probably um uh I, i i suspect a lot of us can tell a tale not too different from that um and it's the it's the even then i knew tale how long it takes for us to get to it how directly we can head to it but he was um, one of the most remarkable things about him, which I, I agree with the things and so very much that everybody else has said. But, you know, you, you, I never sensed a smallness of spirit. I never, I mean, I, I mean, a, a superhuman lack in a sense, a preternatural lack of, I wish that had been me. Or, uh, you know, I want somebody to listen to me more. I wish I had more of the head. This was not who Eric was at all. Uh, yeah. and, and it's just, um, uh, you know, it's so funny because here's a person who, 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 was, uh, who, who, I, who would have told you that any preternatural uh, or, or, you know, superhuman uh, imposition of the notions of charity of spirit, humility, things like this, he would have told you, nah, it's just mumbo jumbo. And yet, um, 
such a such a deep connection and commitment to those values it was uh it, it's quite astounding there's a there's a poem that i read many many years ago that i cannot remember clearly enough but um it's uh it's about a guy who um the angel of the lord comes to call on him and uh, he's he's been an atheist his his entire life okay um and so the the angel is like he's got the book of the people who believe in god and the guy's name isn't in it uh and he says uh he says well uh just record me as someone who cared about his fellow man okay and the next day the recording angel turns up again and this time he's got the book of the people who are going to heaven okay and the atheist is like number one on the list all right um i think that to me in some ways is eric okay um i i commented on uh dave freer's uh post for those of you who have ever seen the movie the shack okay um God appears in in the movie uh, as a as a black woman um, and uh, as Papa and this recurrent phrase that that comes out is I am especially fond of so and so because God loves all of all of his her children you know but these are the ones who shine especially brightly um and like i told dave in that post i'm pretty sure that somewhere god who i do believe in uh is looking at eric flint and saying i am especially fond of you <laughs> you know what i'm saying yeah. um because i cannot think of a single person of faith that i know who could have been more generous of spirit. There was a point right. when, when we were going through uh, the workup for the crossing and he, he sent me a message and then ended up calling and said, Hey, I, I need to slip us in the schedule. And I said, why? He goes, well, it's, it's, it's personal with one of my other co-writers, but I really feel like I need to do this with them now. And I could tell by, by his conviction and what he was saying without saying it, that, I, it was certainly something that was very important to him. And it was an easy thing for me to say, Hey, absolutely D do what you feel you have to do, because that was just who he was. He was incredibly giving, like you said, David, incredibly generous of spirit and that never failed to come through in everything that he did. I mean, I had the opportunity with, with Chuck at Pensacon a couple of years ago to be there with Eric and watching Eric interact with fans and with every fan, it was the same. Every reaction was the same. And it just, that, that was him. And, you know, then he would, he would stand up and we'd sit there and we'd, and we'd all talk and he'd kind of do the ah thing, but it, he was generous and he gave so much of himself that it's, it's one of those lessons that I hope to take and be able to pay forward for the next however many years, because that was really the way that it should be done. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I was I was fortunate enough to uh, know Roger Zelazny uh, for 10, 12 years before we lost him and to regard him as a, as a personal friend. And I decided early on that Roger was who I wanted to be when I grew up uh, as a writer, not necessarily because of the nebulas and the Hugos or anything else. 
but because of his openness, his his uh, his response uh, to be, now he could be he could be short when somebody you know uh, somebody took advantage or tried to take advantage uh, of something. But there are people you want to use as a role model, and there are people you don't want to use as a role model. Okay. Uh, and except for his obviously mistaken political views, uh, Eric <laughs> would, be, would be my number one choice for a lot of people to use as their their example, their their uh... yeah. Go. I I just was thinking that it's one of the things about working with Eric and then working with the people who work with Eric, and it's it's kind of interesting the way it. You know, it's the old it's the old birds of a feather that flock together, and it's kind of usually I think our society has, and probably it's it's not just our society; it's probably human society has to has to construct its its temples and 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 create its shibboleths and all the rest. But the bottom line is, with Eric, because he resisted all that, in a sense, you got a chance. I think I think of it as the church or the temple of common decency. And anybody who was around Eric, and uh, you had a very good chance if somebody had a sustained relationship with Eric, that you were about to meet a fellow person in that incredibly, you know, disparate and uh, congregation, which never meets, but is all that member of, if you will, common decency, because yeah. not that there aren't other things, but that's at the basis of it. And, and Eric gave everyone a shot. I saw people <laughs> to say that Eric disagreed with them and that they were, and that they were uh, uh, you know, very often in, uh, offensive and exceptionally aggressive with one exception. And I think this is actually kind of part of, part of the, the creed of, of whatever temple of common decency might exist dispersed throughout, throughout humanity is Eric had very little patience when somebody who didn't have as much power was getting ridden over by somebody who had more. And, you know, you want to talk about somebody who you wouldn't think that I would be able to make a comparison between Eric Flint and, you know, the, the Chris Evans portrayal of Captain America. But there's that moment where he says, so you're going to go. So you want to go fight Nazis. You want to go kill Nazis. I don't like bullies. Yeah. Eric Flint. Did not like yeah. bullies. And I was right along with him all the way down the line on that. One. Yeah. Yeah. I think one thing that it's hard sometimes to do uh, once you've attained a certain stature in any field. Okay. Um, is to remember, as, as Roger put it, you know, we all put our pants on one leg at a time in the morning said i tried it one time with both it didn't work you know uh kind of thing um but the 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 i have known other writers some of whom have been incredibly successful who were total wastes of time as human beings okay um i think it's probably difficult to be that way because your books have to be something readers can empathize with. And so to me, I can't really conceive of how you are an unmitigated pain in the ass to everyone around you. And yet you write these successful books, but I've seen it happen. Okay. Um, 
And like with Eric, that's one thing that will engage belligerence on my part when I see somebody somebody doing that, especially when they're doing that to be dismissive of someone else, someone who's uh, junior to them in the field, somebody who's written a book they don't approve of or or whatever. But that is, there's a reason that that, was, that kind of behavior was anathema to Eric. And part of it was that Eric was absolutely genuine. What you saw was what you got. There was no pretense in that man. Okay. I mean, okay, sure. There would be the, I'm a communist, you know, kind of thing, you know, but what I'm saying is that once you got to the quintessential Eric, once you started working with him, once you engaged him in a conversation where he had decided that you were up to his weight um, and that you were intellectually honest in the arguments that you were putting forward, even if he didn't agree with them, okay? There was no pretense in him. He was who he was. Um, and I think that that's part of the reason so many people loved him so much okay um i'm i wish that i were able to say that i had supported and nurtured as many careers as he did okay but i can't i don't know anybody this side of some of the publishing houses out there who could who could make that assertion um i think uh jim bain up to the time of his death might have been able to and i know that tony has you know she's supported a lot of careers um but eric had that um that breadth of wing spread that he could hand he could do something like 1632 and there aren't a whole lot of people who, who can do that. And one of the things that's remarkable in this shared universe, okay, is that unlike a lot of shared universes where the various authors all are roughly the same stature when they enter into the universe, okay, right. Eric was continually bringing in newbies, and they were getting a seat at the table right along with everybody else. That's really hard to do, guys. Really. So well, I think part of I think part of the thing that also makes it different from what goes on in publishers is Eric, quite frankly, if Eric Eric was too smart not to realize that the calculus pointed the other way from profit. I mean, I think it, it, it and, and publishers, of course, are going to think about profit. They may be meet other things may mediate that, but Eric took took writers and and encouraged them and nurtured them who were probably never going to, you know, what was this going to be their whole career? Who knew? How yeah. good would they wind up being? What sort of what sort of audience? Unknown. But it never stopped him. You know, and he was always honest with where he was both honest and encouraging where you were and where you could where he could see you might go. But also, you know, he was the first one to say, I don't know, you know, people People hit it. People find their stride. People find the the audience that's listening for exactly what they are, the way they're speaking on in the page. 
And why not? Why not shoot for it? And he invested a huge amount of time. And in our business, where time, let's not say is money, but let's just say time is productivity. He, he gave a huge amount of what he could have reserved for himself as productivity time. And he just, he spent it. He spent it with almost without counting. And that's, that I think is a, I, I'll, I'll go with you, David, and say, and go a step beyond. I don't think anybody, I don't think anybody has done that, that I know of to the, to the extent. In any genre. The, 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 I think even maybe outside the genre. Yeah. I mean, because, because he was always trying to also, when there were, the, the competitions usually took place between the folks who were just getting in. And, and they were like sort of scrambling around for their own. Well, where do I fit in the pecking order? And Eric was the guy who would, he was, he was very fond of the word UKs on the, on the mail list. It would say, okay, now I'm issuing a UK and it is stop it kids. Yeah. I mean, that's what it would boil down to yeah. room enough at the table. You can always grow the pie. And I just can't think of anybody who, who was more selfless and reflexive uh, in the sense of doing it as reflex just spending his time and his well, and, but also being able to identify talent you know he mm -hmm. he not only you know it's 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 a risk for anybody to spend that time on it but he managed to pretty much bat better than anybody i could think of yeah. in, in terms well, of you know finding the partners to write with as well okay the thing about eric or one of the many things about eric when you're talking about his generosity of time and everything else On some deep fundamental layer, Eric understood that generosity of time was repaid with success. Okay, um, one of the one of the mistakes that people make when they're thinking about publishing or a lot of other art forms is that it's a zero sum uh, uh, thing. If I if I succeed, you fail. If you succeed, I fail. Okay. And Eric and I had many conversations about that because I'd been publishing for like what, seven years, something like that, when he sold his first book. Um, and, and we had a lot of discussions about that. Um, and it's not a zero sum game. Okay. My success doesn't have to come at the expense of your failure. And your success is not going to, to damage me. Uh, he understood one of the things that I think a lot of people miss, which is that it is the writer's individual voice that buys and wins readership. Not necessarily the kinds of stories that he tells, but the way that he or she tells the stories is what is success or failure uh, in this business. And... He also understood that that came in a lot of different flavors. There wasn't one way to tell a story that would work and another way that would fail. He understood that trying to do a pastiche of a successful author was a pretty sure path to failure. And so he never encouraged people to do that. He always encouraged you to find your own feet, develop your own voice. And yes, he would give you editorial input and he would say, this isn't working. But one of the things that I think he learned from Jim, I, you know, I think it would have been inherent in him anyway, but one of the things that he learned from Jim was the art of saying, there's a problem here, here's what it is, go fix it, rather than there's a problem here, and this is how I want you to fix it. 
Okay, that's a really hard lesson for any editor uh, to learn. Um, and Eric, Eric was not the paragon of all virtues. What? Okay. No, I'm sorry to tell you this. Okay. Uh, he genuinely could be crotchety upon occasion. Okay. But the thing is that in his case, all of the flaws that he had, that those of us who knew him longest got the best look at, okay, were pretty much meaningless against the weight of all the virtues that we got to know as well. All right. Um, one of the things he understood when he was building a character is that we are all combinations of good traits and bad. All right. And his Flintian hero was one in whom the good traits outweighed the bad. And in a lot of ways, he was writing about himself uh, when he did that. Um, and I'm not trying to say, oh boy, he had a whole bunch of bad traits or anything like that. What I'm saying is that he had the days when, you know, probably even Lou didn't want to talk to him, <laughs> you know, because he was in that mood, you know, whatever. Uh, but at the end of the day, who the hell cared about this or that particular little fault or the day that he was, you know, off his pace a little bit or something? Because that wasn't remotely what people remembered about him. What they remembered about him was all the good stuff. Speaking okay. of which, uh, speaking gonna, of which, yeah. we have uh, we've gone a, a, a while now, and there's more to be said, I'm sure. But uh, if, it, in the interest of the constraints of the show, the Bain Free Radio Hour, could we uh, perhaps go around and give everybody give their uh, single quality or single thing that, that meant the most to them about uh, how uh, Eric conducted himself or is, is conducted the universes that he participated in and or uh, uh, created. Uh, would you like to start for us, Bjorn? Eric thought that there should be certain rules in uh, how uh, writing and publishing worked. And one of the ones he emphasized was that money goes from the uh, publisher to the writer. And he didn't just say that, oh, when um, there's a ring of fire con, he took people out to dinner. He would not let you pick up a check when he was acting in his editor capacity. And that impressed on me more than just the words would have. And then even within the 1632 universe, we've got a, you know, a character claim process. And he called me up out of the blue one day and he's like, hey, such and such a character. Does anybody, you know, has anybody ever done anything with him? And he made sure that what he wanted to do fit in with this very little minor thing that, that an author had done when he could have said, oh, let's just disregard that. Kevin? I think the, the the biggest lesson that I've continued to take from Eric and it, it, I feel like anymore his the, the muse I have is his voice sometimes you know leaning over the shoulder in that gravelly voice as I write the one question he always pushed on me was who gives a shit who cares 
you have to you have to write your characters in a way where the audience is going to care about them and that means that you have to care about them and the other characters have to care about them and you have to go down this rabbit hole as far as you can to understand how the the emotional connection is going to be not only between your characters between your character and the reader and from the first time I heard that, I mean, literally, it's something that every time I write, there's at some point in a scene, that question pops into my head because we have a tendency to get verbose or we have a tendency to go down a little rabbit hole of our own as authors. And it comes back to, oh, Kevin, who gives a shit? What are you doing here? And it's it's fun to be able to, to pull that back. And it's something that it continues to live on. And as I teach writing classes at the different conferences and whatnot I go to, I always throw it out. And, it's, and I give great credit to where it's due that Eric Flint taught me this. And it's the most important lesson I ever learned as far as character development was who gives a shit. How about you, Chuck? At the risk of something too expansive, um, I don't think... I had I was fortunate enough to have a mentor that I really learned the key lessons and had the confidence and just and was given the the, the permission to self belief at, at you know long before by somebody by the name of Jacqueline Lichtenberg uh, who's just outstanding and still working today, but it was Eric who more than anybody else, um, not trying to but gave me this sort of ringside seat to, to everything from the nuts and bolts of how you collaborate, how you write, how you might, how you might approach something differently to the ways that, that he managed various IPs. He handled, he handled the people in them. Um, he was flexible. He, he was flexible regarding method, but I'll come back to this idea of values. But the, but the bottom line was the values were sacrosanct. The way they might be expressed or maximized or whatever, or the, the way that, that you know, current changes in the field were making it necessary to reapproach how to do the best job by the, those values, um, for those values, that would alter, but he never lost sight of that. And he's given me more to think about at every level of the craft and the business and who you are as a human being as you proceed through it, um, then, then probably, he didn't use the phrase, a rising tide lifts all boats, but man, he lived it. And, and, he, and if, I, if I ever had doubted um, that it was efficacious, important, left its mark on so many people, well, here I am, you know, at a, at, at a testimonial to the fact that by damn it does, by damn, it makes a difference. And I think that if he left anything, and I think this is maybe something that had something to do with the writers he brought to him and then worked with, perhaps the one, maybe the more you work, the more comfortable he was. Eric wanted to tell stories about heroes that were not deifications of any particular individual human. And I think that's, that's really important because I think in a, in a time, because Eric was very open-minded, but, I think even even Eric ran into a point where relativism could actually erode the foundation of key values. And he just wanted to tell a story about, about heroes who might struggle with that in one way or the other, but who always came in the in the clutch in the end. They came through and they did the right thing. And and he and at the same time, 
he, he was teaching me, I didn't know it, for the better part of a decade, a masterclass in how to, in how to survive and hopefully thrive. And in my turn, be able to hopefully pay some of it forward. Well said. How about you, David? <clears throat> Eric and I had a different relationship professionally from anybody else here today because I was already a well-established author. The Anna Harrington books had already taken off uh, when Eric and I met. And the Anna Harrington books, I think, are, among other things, an excellent example of the point that I think, I can't remember whether it was Kevin or, or Bajorn made earlier, uh, about when a story hits and finds its audience. There are people out there who are, in my opinion, every bit as good as a writer or a storyteller as I am, who are never fortunate enough to have something like Honor Harrington come along and, and take off. So a lot depends on where it strikes the publisher that you find who can support you properly. There's a lot of factors involved here beyond just the question of how much sheer brilliance you have uh, as a writer. Um. So I never actually was mentored by him, but I learned a lot from working with him. One reason I do collaborations is to learn from the other writer, right. even writers who are a lot junior to me, who may come at something and cause me to say, whoa, wait a minute. That's, you know, that's an interesting perspective that I hadn't had before that I can incorporate into the work further down the road. But one thing that I will say, uh, Chuck, you were talking about the values and you used the term um, relativism at one point. Eric Flint did not believe in relativism. Okay. That was one of the points where he and I agreed that relativism was one of the things that had eroded uh, the honesty, intensity, and courtesy of debate. That may be true for you, it's not true for me, uh, was not in his lexicon, okay? It was true for him and something else might be true for you. Let's talk about it, if you see what I'm saying. And what that goes to the root of, in my personal opinion, is that core honesty of his. Okay, uh, not just in terms of what he did with other people, but of what he did with himself and what he did with his writing. All right. Um, there were times when I would say to him, Eric, this isn't going to work. And he would go, oh, okay, like, why not? All right. And I would explain to him that there was a continuity problem, that there was something that had already been established in the universe. And that didn't bother him a bit. Okay. There was one occasion where we had a difference of opinion on the motivation of one of his characters. And the problem was that the character's origins, in my opinion, would have made it very difficult for that character to have evolved the attitude that Eric had, had, had given the character. Um, and I said, you know, Eric, this person is not coming from the background that would, that would naturally generate this view. If we're going to do this, we have to explain why 
this this character would have this this view. And Eric said to me, well, the reason he feels this way is very simple. And I said, yeah, I said, he's a decent human being. <laughs> I was like, I understand he's a decent human being, but you have him making this conceptually, not a conceptual leap. He's a decent human being. <laughs> I said, I said, Eric, let me tinker with this a little bit. You know? And he said, all right. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. But, you know, that was, that was Eric. Okay. I mean, that was, that was him all over again. Uh, you know, but I remember when I read mother of demons. Okay. Uh, the, the mother in question and the, the, uh, I can't remember the name of the, the, the alien who, winds up throwing in with the humans she's the ex-gladiator the ex-soldier she's kidnapped one of the males because the empress was going to kill her and everything else but i will tell you honestly the two scenes that stand out for me from that book more than anything else are number one the scene in which the human character realizes that she's going to have to unpack human history, human technology, and human capabilities for these aliens, even though we've done such horrible things in 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 the past. Okay, that I can't give you, I can't give you uh, uh, the Declaration of Independence without also telling you about the ESS. Okay, this the whole story has to come out. But the other one is, you know, for, for people who are listening to me, haven't read this book and they should. Okay. It is really a remarkable book. The aliens are phototropic. That's how they display emotion. Um, and uh, the, it's like the color of, of, uh, of green is, 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 uh, is happiness. The color of black is this, you know, the color of white is anger, you know. Um, and when they're on the battlefield, they're displaying the color of their emotions. Um, and the second most feared uh, uh, warrior on, on the battlefield uh, is the one who is, who is green because that reflects that they are, they're, they're, this, they're happy. This is what they're doing, you know, kind of thing. Element. But the most, the most feared ones are the ones who are gray because gray is the color of calm, the color of, of peace. And you really don't want to mess with somebody who feels that way. Well, the viewpoint alien involved is she's, I'm done. I'm not going to be involved in these battles. And she's watching the humans that she's come to care about go down one by one. And she charges and she cuts her way through the entire army. And, and, and she turns the tide of the battle. And she's gray the whole time she's doing it. It's just gray. Okay. As she's watched her human friends, as far as she knows, all be killed, although actually most of them survive, but she doesn't know that. So at the end of the of the story, the bards are singing about, you know, her her glorious charge and how calm she was and everything. And she doesn't have the heart to tell them that it wasn't calm. It was that she had nothing left to lose. Okay. That's an incredibly powerful metaphor. And it's a really strong scene when he writes it. 
And that goes to the heart of Eric as storyteller, not just as mentor, not just as guide, not just as this is the guy that we knew and loved for his personality and so forth. It goes to his ability to make you, to put you inside, not just the character's thoughts, the character's mind, but that character's hopes and beliefs and who that character is. And that is not as easy as people who haven't done it may think that it is. But Eric had that gift from the very beginning. Well, I think we're uh, coming to an end of it. We still have our memories, et cetera, and and, uh, we'll continue to try and pay it forward as much as we can. This has been the Bain Free Radio Hour with uh, David Weber, Chuck Gannon, Kevin Eikenberry, and Bjorn Hassler, and myself, Griffin Barber. We hope you enjoyed this uh, remembrance of Eric Flint, our friend. We'll see you soon. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony world's Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. C3 by reports you did extremely well, Mendro commented, looking around at the six grimy trainees seated in a semicircle in front of his desk. Given you're all alive and relatively unscathed, I would tend to agree. Any immediate reactions to the missions that spring to mind? Yes, sir. Deutsch spoke up after a moment of thoughtful silence. We had some major problems leading that resistance team. Their mistakes were very hard to compensate for. Was that simulation realistic? Mandro nodded. Unfortunately, yes. Civilians are always going to make what are, to you, incredibly stupid mistakes. About all you can do is try and minimize that effect while maintaining an attitude of patience. Other comments? No? Then I suppose we'd better move on to the reason I called you here. The charges outstanding against Trainee Moreau. The abrupt change of subject sent a rustle of surprise through the group. Charges, sir? Deutsch asked carefully. Yes. He's been accused of attacking a civilian during your unauthorized trip into town four nights ago. Mendro gave them a capsule summary of Palit's story. Moreau claims he didn't do it, he concluded. Comments? I don't believe it, sir, Halloran said flatly. I'm not calling this character a liar, but I think he must have misread the name. Or else saw Johnny that night, got into a fight later, and is trying to stick the army for his medical costs, Nofke suggested. Perhaps, Mendro nodded. But suppose for the moment it's true. Do you think I would be justified in that event in transferring Moreau out of the Cobras? An uncomfortable silence descended on the room. Johnny watched the play of emotion across their faces. But while he clearly had their sympathy, 
It was also clear which way they were leaning. He hardly blamed them. In their places, he knew which answer he would choose. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to David Weber, Charles E. Gannon, Bjorn Hassler, Kevin Eikenberry, and Griffin Barber for sitting down to discuss the late Eric Flint. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.